Amen. Good morning, church. Yeah, a lot of happy faces out there. I like that. Uh, my name is Simon. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hills, and we're glad you've joined us this morning as we are continuing our study in 1 John. We're past the halfway point, and we've been chugging into it. Um, a lot of great stuff that we've been learning as we've gone. Now, last week, uh, John was pressing really hard on this idea that we have to, there's, there's a right way to understand God. There's, there's a right way to understand who Jesus is, that he would be called the Christ. We talked about that was a title that was used. And when we talk about right belief in God, we're talking about orthodoxy. Maybe you've heard that term before. There's an orthodoxy to what we believe. And so the flip side of that coin is talking about the Antichrist or the Antichrist, the one who denies or is against Jesus being the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one that was going to come and die for the sins of the world. So we talked about that. And this week, John's going to continue building off of the idea of orthodoxy and that we have to have a right believing in who God is. And he's going to move to this other idea of obedience and love that are linked to our beliefs. Now, uh, hopefully you come here and every once in a while you learn a new thing, you learn a new word. But I want to use the word orthopraxy. It's actually the name of the sermon this week is Christian orthopraxy. And you're like, what's well, a weird word? What does that mean? Well, it sounds a lot like orthodoxy, doesn't it? It's the belief that right action is important as religious faith or we would see right worship or right glory. It's this idea that what we believe and how we live are linked together and we've talked a lot about that. What you believe is what you will do. And that's been a common theme that John has been working through in this. In the book of James, that, that section in James 2, 14 through 26, says that faith and works, right? That they're worked together. That they're a part of who they are. Jesus would end up talking about a tree and its fruit and what that looks like. So it's not this weird, uncommon, abstract idea that just John is coming up with, but we see that also James is talking about it and that Jesus is talking about it. And if they're all talking about it, chances are it's probably really important to who we are if we claim to be Christians. And so what I want to do today is I want to jump into 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 28 all the way through 310. That's going to be our text for the day. And we, we're going to jump to a couple of other passages. For, for the most part, we're going to kind of stick right in the main text for today as we work through it. So let's go ahead and read together. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers. Okay, that's a lot. We should pray before we jump into this. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for the ability to open your word, to let your word wash over us, to let your word speak to us. If your word is truth, we want to know truth. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would reveal that to us, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears to hear what you have for us today. Lord, I don't know where everybody is this morning and what they're going through and what they've brought to the table here this morning, but I know that you do. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that you would use me in a way that would be helpful, encouraging, and accurate to point to your son being the reason that we have any hope at all. If there's things that I don't need to say, just take them away. And may you use this time to bless your people. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, John has been using contrast through all this past. He keeps talking about contrast all the time. And he's going to keep moving into that. And he's going to talk about sin. He's going to talk about righteousness. And um, we see that... He talks about sin six times. He talks about righteousness six times. He talks about being children of God or someone else six times. So there's something connected to righteousness and sin that there's this contrast that he wants us to understand. But he also is going to press into the idea of what it means to have different fathers. And it's a contrast of fathers that we have and what that looks like. And we're going to dive into that. And so what he's going to do is he's, he's going to kind of piggyback on last week with this idea of abiding in Jesus. And we talked about the word abiding last week. It's that, that word minnow, which means to continue. And so he's saying that we would abide in Jesus, that we would continue in an ongoing, active relationship with Jesus in our lives. And it doesn't stop. It wasn't a one and done. It was like, well, I got the cross. I got the fire insurance. I'm out. But what it means is that we continue in relationship with him. We continue walking with him as he speaks to us and speaks into our lives. And then he starts talking about this idea that Jesus, there's this coming back, that he's going to come back in some way, and that there's this confidence that we should not be afraid or full of shame when he returns. Now, I love talking about uh, the different fun things in my life and my family, and uh, this last week, I ended up talking with my youngest son, Huntley, and he came to me with a very simple question. He says, Dad, what's it going to be like when Jesus comes back? And I'm like, well, that's a big question, son. <laughs> and there are many, many books written about that. And so I said, all right, let me give you the flyby, but I'm going to go back to my office tomorrow, and I'm going to bring a book back. It's got a bunch of like charts that kind of help you see it a little bit better. And I was so excited because we sat down, and we ended up reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology together. And I'm like, this is the best story time I could ever have with my son. And he's like, this is really boring, Dad. And I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> he didn't say that. He's a good kid. Um, but that was like the highlight of my week. Anytime I get to talk about Jesus, anytime my kids are excited about learning about who Christ is, I get excited. 
And then I thought, oh man, I'm preparing for this week's sermon while ministering to my son. And then I had to take a hard pause because I was going to share all the different views on the tribulation and the millennium. I was gonna like, oh, we can do all this end time stuff. It's going to be great. But then I thought, I don't know if that is going to serve us best in this text today. I don't know if by going through all of these things that that is going to be the most important thing. Now, it's important. We should know what we believe and we should know what the scriptures say. We should know the different views and the different arguments are there. And I will say that we'll get there. That'll happen, and maybe that'll be on a Sunday. Maybe we'll just do a class on it during uh, one of the weekend things. We'll do something, but we're going to get there. But here's the thing that I want us to all understand. Out of all the major views of end times and tribulation and when he's coming back, there is one major thing that they all agree on. Anyone? He's coming back. That's the big one. Like Everything hinges on the fact that, yes... Jesus is coming back. He did not leave us high and dry. He did not desert us. He is coming back for his children. Yes. (laughs) And that's the big idea. We have to understand that key thing. And so when I say that, that Jesus is coming back, that might invoke different feelings in all of us, right? Like you think about Jesus coming back and there are some that are like, well... Maybe he should come back tomorrow. Maybe, maybe there's some things going on that I don't know if I'm that excited about Jesus being here. And maybe you're like, I can't wait for him to get back. I'm done with everything that's going on on this planet. I need Jesus to come back because I want this made right. And that's what John is getting at. That there's feelings invoked with what you do with that. If, if your thoughts go to concern or worry when Jesus comes back, that says something about what's going on in your heart, doesn't it? Now, if you're like excited and ramped up and hallelujah, let's get this on, that also says something about what's going on in your life. And that's what John is trying to press into. Like, what's going on in your hearts, you guys? Like, What are you doing with the life, the new life that Jesus has given you that you get to walk in every day? And I I love that we can be really afraid of feelings all the time, but God gave us feelings. He, He gave us feelings for a reason. And a lot of times those feelings are there to help us understand what's going on inside of our hearts. And so when you like, why am I worried? Why am I sad? Why am I angry? There's something going on there. And I would say this, he's given you that as a gift to explore what's going on in your heart, who he is, and what his word has to say about it. And I'd say press into that. And then he says that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, at first glance, this can be a really weird statement. Like, so you're just telling me if someone does something right, if someone does something good, that they're born of God and they're in. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what John is saying either. See, the word righteousness is actually connected to living in accord to God's perfect standard. Well, here's the problem. Us being sinful people, we don't have the ability to do that. We lost that right when sin entered the world. Like, that was out the door. There is nothing good in us that gives us the ability to do that. So you're like, well, I know people that don't know Jesus that are really nice and that, that do good things. Me too. Here's the thing. 
we can very easily get stuck in the trap that John's been talking about, which is that whose standard are you using? See, the world has different standards of what is good, right, and what we should do, right? And sometimes those do line up with God's word. They do. Sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't. But what I'm saying is this, that God has a standard that is so far above what we would call good, what we would call right. And it's saying the only one that ever lived to that perfect standard was who? Yes, it's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who met that standard. So it's saying that there needs to be something else, a righteousness that we live through that would look different. And it's about reflecting Jesus and reflecting God and what we do and what we say and how we live and how we act. And that comes only from being born in Christ. And this is why John would say that we are children of God. He's inferring something here, isn't he? That we would look like our Father. That we would start to act like, speak like, think like, walk like our Father. If we, like, you think about it, we, we think about our earthly parents. There are traits that you have that are like your parents, aren't they? Sometimes you're like, I can't believe I sound just like my dad right now. Or I sound just like, some, we use that in a negative term. But there's sometimes we use it in a positive term. Like, man, my dad used to do this thing and I, I'm doing that now. And that, that's just really cool. But what he's saying is this, that you will look like your father if you've been born of the father. And that's what he's starting to press into. And so he says this in chapter 3, 1 through 2. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we will know when when He appears that we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. I love this statement. There's this, like, John kind of like, he, he does this thing where he comes in hard a little bit, and then he kind of backs out to give you the reality of the picture, right? Of what's the big picture of what's happening. And he has this statement, and it says, see what kind of love the Father has. Now, that's good, but I don't think it actually captures the thrust of what John is trying to say. If you look at the, like, the original language, you're not getting the full um, power of what he's saying. Um, it's a command is what it is. And so you know when you talk to somebody and say, look at me. You know when you say that? Everyone just looked at me. It was great. (laughs) I commanded something, didn't I? That's what he's saying. He says, look at the Father's love for you. It's a command for us to stop and pause, to look at deeply, to gaze upon, to ponder and behold, to stop everything in your life that you're doing for that moment And understand that there is a love that God has for you that you can barely even begin to understand. Well, how do we know that God has loved us so deeply? How how, how do we know that this, this love that you speak of is so great that John would command me to stop everything in my life to look at this? Because the Bible would say, that while we were in full-blown rebellion against him, not listening to him, not following him, not submitting to him, not honoring him, that he realized that there was a consequence for rebellion against him, that that was the wrath of God poured out on the world for rebelling and rejecting him. 
Yet he sends his son to come down to earth to show us who he is, what he loves, what he cares for, what he thinks about things, to walk with his creation in a way that they've never seen before. And then as he does that, he says, hey, you're in trouble. You don't have the ability to save yourself. The Bible said that you were dead in your trespass. You have no ability to save yourself. And so what does Jesus do? He then goes and becomes a substitution and takes our place, the place that we were destined to be. He says, I will come. I will take that place. I will stand in your stead. And I will die for your sins. The wrath that you deserve has been absorbed by Jesus. The pain that we deserve was absorbed by Jesus. The rejection of the Father that we deserve was been given to Jesus. He took that for us. Then he died in our place, meeting the requirements for sin through the Father. I'm like, well, that's pretty amazing. It doesn't stop there. Like, it just doesn't, like, that's not, you're like, well, that's really good. That's, that's really, that's, that's great, Simon. Then he adopts us as his children. He didn't just die for us and, well, just try to stop sinning. No, he, he then adopts us in. And Galatians would, would give us that, that beautiful passage in uh, Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son onto your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. does that who who takes their enemies sacrifices one of their kids for them and then adopts them into their family that's crazy like nothing about that makes sense but yet this is the god that we worship that he would go to these great links to show his great love for us. You see, sonship and daughtership is a total blessing. And with that, it has rights and privileges. We have access that we once didn't have before. We think of uh, powerful people in the world, right? We think of kings and queens and emperors. And we think of the president. And we think of all these different individuals. And they, go, they have power and they have authority. And you, you can't... I can't waltz in to talk to the president. I don't have that ability. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't do that. But what is being said is there's, there's something I, I want to I paint a picture for you. I want, and I can't even paint it. I'm going to show you a picture. And it's something that I think is, it, it encapsulates the very idea of our relationship with God. So I'll throw, throw the picture up on the screen that we have up here. This is a classic picture, okay? Maybe you were alive when you, like, I remember when they took that picture. I wasn't, but. <laughs> so if you don't know, that's JFK, all right? And if you look underneath, that's JFK Jr. That's in the Oval Office. That is at the president's desk. He's working. He's probably signing some bill at that point. I'm doing some, I'm doing president, I'm doing fancy, I'm important, I have authority. 
Do you think that Simon could be like, hey, is it cool if I play underneath your desk, Joe? Can we just like, you know, Legos or whatever? No, I'd be shot so many times by the time I got there. There's no way I have that access. But here's the thing. That's his son. And his son can come and go freely to see his father when he chooses. Do you realize this is the picture that we have with the God of the universe so much more powerful than the president? So much more powerful than anyone in the entire world. And yet this, I want you to think, when you think about access with God, think about, that's you. You're down there. You can be in your father's room. You can be about his business. And he loves you and welcomes you and allows you to do whatever you want to because he loves you. He cares for you. He welcomes you in. That's the picture that we have. This is the great love. This is the great love that we have from our father. It says that we should not be called children of God, but yet we are because of his love. And John loves this idea so much, he literally says it twice. He says, because we are. Like you just said that, John. That's an unnecessary sentence. Because John is so amped about his access and relationship, that's what, he, that's what he's saying. And then he wants to help us understand the world does not understand this. The world doesn't get this. They, they don't know because they're not God's children. They don't understand this kind of righteousness. They don't understand this kind of love because they've never seen it before. I mean, think about this. You ever had someone who just like, I don't get why you do what you do as a Christian. That was my dad growing up. He just never understood anything I did. And he's like, I don't, and he would get mad at me sometimes for not doing what he did. And I'd say, well, well dad, like God says that that is sin. He's like, what? He just, he, there was no compartment because he didn't have his eyes open to the truth he didn't know what it meant to be a child of God. And it's funny, towards the end of his life, after he had made a uh, commitment to Christ, he's like, you know, I never understood growing up, Simon, like, why, why you did what you did. And it, I get it now. Like, God's hand was on your life, and he was directing. Like, my dad's saying this. And I'm like, what? this is a miracle. This is crazy. His eyes were open. See, that's what he's saying, that, if your eyes have been opened, this doesn't make sense. They don't recognize you. They don't recognize him. They don't understand what you're doing. Because God's righteousness is so different than the world's righteousness. Like, the world's righteousness is, a, it's like trash compared to God's righteousness. There's just, it's not even in the same ballpark. And then in verse 2, he's going to make this, this great statement. He said, beloved, we are God's children now. So that, that's a powerful statement because it's a present tense declarative statement. For those that have placed their life in the life of Jesus, that is now your standing. That is who you are. You are now children of God. We talked about it last week, this idea of doubting who we are and our security of salvation that we don't have to because if we're a child of God, he holds us, he keeps us, and no one can take us from him. That's what he's saying. And he wants us to remember, don't forget who you are. And then he's going to shift back this idea of like when Jesus comes back. He gives us this promise to look forward to. That we're going to see Jesus in his glorified state. When Jesus uh, died on the cross, he rose again. We're gonna, we're get, as we get to Easter, we're going to talk more about that. That's going to be a, you know, kind of a big deal. 
as we get there, but they saw him afterwards for up to 40 days as he taught them and walked with them. And, and, but there are these things that happened. Like, he would, like, show up in a locked room. Hey, guys. It's like, what's going on? Like, what are you doing here? How'd you get in here? He would come and go at different times. He would disappear at some points. He had this new glorified body that worked different than the body that we have now. It didn't have the same limitations that we have. And it's saying that when he comes back, we will see him in that glorified state. We will see him for who he truly is. And we will understand why we should fall to our knees and on our face to worship him. It's actually the response that John would have later as he wrote Revelation when he saw Jesus again. Literally fell on his face as a dead man. We get to see that. And it's saying that we will have bodies like his. Not equal to, but like his. Because here's the thing. These bodies, because of sin, don't have the ability to live in that way. These are broken vessels. Broken jars of clay. Broken cisterns, as the Bible would talk about us and who we are. That we don't have the ability. So we're going to have these new bodies that can live the way that we were designed to live. Like, think about this. Our new bodies will live perfectly for God in all ways. Like, we will have our intelligence and not be wrong at times. Like, we're not going to be wrong. We will be without error in our thinking. Our physical bodies will no longer have the weakness that plague us. Can I get an amen from anyone in the audience on that one? <laughs> Purged of all sin fully able to live for God, completely and fully, continually filled with the Spirit all the time. Void of, of all these things that plague us. See, we weren't able to live this way because of the effects of sin, but now this new body, we can live the way we were designed to live, which is why we need these new bodies. So I was thinking about this idea of Jesus coming back and the second coming. My mind goes to my wife. I think about my wife all the time. I just can't believe that God has allowed me to fool her into marriage and that she married me. I, just, I, I wonder so often, like, did you blind her or did you just make me better for a little bit? Like, I don't know which one it was, but either way, I came out shining in this thing. And my wife, I, 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 I say, I don't joke. She is better than me in so many different areas of my life. She is an, a, an amazing woman. And, and one of the things you've done is if you've, if you've ever been to our house, um, and if you're like, oh, your house looks nice. There's a reason why the house looks nice. It isn't me. <laughs> I'm not the reason why the house looks so good. I'm not the reason why the sink is empty. I'm not the reason why there isn't dust everywhere. I'm not the reason why everything is color-coordinated. My wife is. My wife is very diligent about having the house prepared at all times. And here's why. Our house has always been a revolving door of people coming in and out of our home. We love having an open home. We love uh, entertaining. We love eating with people. We love uh, spending time with people. That's, that's just who we are. And so my wife is always prepared for whenever anyone may stop by at any given point. The house is always ready. Like, we'll go on vacation. She will spend half a day cleaning the house before we leave. I'm like, we're not going to be here. What are you doing? I'm like, are you preparing it for the thieves that will come and steal from us? She's like, no, you're so short-sighted. When I come home, I don't want to have to clean. I'm like, you are brilliant. You are so smart. But we're always ready 
for when anyone may come by that our house would be prepared in such a way that we can be with others. This is what John's getting at with this idea of having this pure life that is pure like the sun. That when he returns, we will be ready for him to come and visit us. We should always be living every day of our lives in such a way that we can anticipate Christ coming at any point and we're ready and we're prepared and we're, we're excited for that moment. And that's what he's getting at. That's where he's going with this. And, and I'll say this, some of you, and praise the Lord, your life is in a great spot and you are striving after Jesus and you are growing in your faith and, and like there's just not these big crazy sin issues in your life. That's awesome. And your house is sort of clean. Other you, you, have, a, you, you have a life like a college dorm room. <laughs> like there, if you have ever been to a college dorm room, you're like, oh, I don't want to know what kind of cans those were. I don't want to know what's underneath that bed. But that's how we treat our lives at times, that we're not ready for a visitor to come that we would be with. I'm saying that we need to live in such a way that this is what we're striving to be like the one who saved us. Now, don't confuse what I'm saying with, oh, that's why God loves us, because I'm doing all these things. No. We do those things because he has loved us. That's, that's why we do it. We're not trying to earn God to, hey, if I do these things, you'll love me. You'll do all, all you love me now. No. Like, if that was how it was with kids, we'd never love our kids, right? <laughs> Only the parents are laughing because they get it. <laughs> kids are like, I don't, what do you mean? I'm amazing. That's, that's what he wants us to understand. Like, are you living in this way? And he's going to shift to this other idea that there is this other side of the coin that we need to understand uh, to make sure that we understand what John is saying about the word practicing sin. That's that next section that he pressed into verses four through six. Whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. What is he saying when he says practice? Like, what does he mean in that? Like, when I say practice, practicing sin, I mean this ongoing, continual engagement, making room for, okay with, partaking on a regular basis. That's practicing. That's what I'm talking about. So does this mean, well, I, 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 I sinned. Is that what we're talking about? I, I sinned once? No, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're saying. See, we know that there will be times when we sin. There will be times when we make mistakes, when we live out of the old life, when we live in that flesh that we were saved from. And how do I know that? Because it says so in John chapter 2. Chapter 2, 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So does he want us to sin? No. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, so if you do, we have an advocate. We have someone that speaks on our behalf, and it's his righteousness that allows that. And then it tells us how to do it if we do. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see how righteous is connected to who we are and how we live? So it's not, it's not if we ever sin. It's what we do with that sin. See, it's important to who we are in Christ with how we live our lives. The term lawlessness is connected to sinning. The definition I found that I really liked, I just thought it was just like a really well put uh, 
uh, idea, bereft of God's guidance. I'm like, oh, that just sounds smart. So then I had to look up bereft because I didn't know what it meant, (laughs) which means deprived or lacking God's guidance. This is the idea of saying, I don't need God's guidance. I don't need God's word. I don't need to submit to God. I don't care what he says. I'm going to do what I want. This idea of practicing is, is the same idea that we use for sports. How do we get better at a sport? How do we get better at a hobby? By doing it on a regular basis all the time. That's what he's talking about with sin. Have you just said, this is sin? I know it's sin. I don't care. I'm going to say it's not sin. I'm just going to keep doing it. Forget it. I like, I love it. It's great. It's fantastic. That's what he's saying. Is that the kind of sin that we have on us? Ongoing, continual. It's important to understand that John is going to give us the hope and the reason why we should not be partaking in sin. And he does it in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, You know that he has appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He'll actually restate this again in a different way in verse 8. Again, like we talked about this, John circles the idea, right? And he keeps hitting it from all these different spots. Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him is no sin. He took away our punishment for our sins. He took away that the, that the control that sin has in your life, that we become slaves. And we talked about that in Romans 7 with Paul, right? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I don't want to do and the things that I do? Like, you're like, that just sounds so wordy. It's super wordy. But if you slow down and read it, it's like him struggling. Like, I know what I want to do, but I can't not do it. That's what he's saying. It's that struggle. He took those sins away. He took away the effects of sin and the punishment of sin and the wrath of God because of sin. And and we can't forget that it's sin that caused the separation between us and God, the very source of life that we have, the thing that allowed us to live, to be in harmony with God. That was stripped away when sin entered the world. It took it all. And that is the sin that Jesus died for on the cross in your place so you wouldn't have to be a slave to it. Do you really think that God is excited about us continuing in that life that he's freed us from? Do you really think he goes, that's so great. You just do you. You just keep living the way you want to live. No, he's like, I freed you from this. You didn't even know you were a slave and I had to free you. Proverbs would paint this really graphic, harsh picture and so it's, because it's in the Bible, I can read it, right? I can, I can do any of that. He paints this picture that's so visual. And you go, wow, that's horrible. But it encapsulates the very idea of why would we return to sin once we've been freed? And it's Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. If you've ever owned a dog, it is one of the grossest things foul, lovingly creatures that want to lick your face afterwards. And just, by the way, dog will lick your face after they do that. That's gross. But I love my dog. We, we look at this and we sort of chuckle. But this is exactly what God's saying. When you've been freed from sin, and that's been removed from your life, like a dog, when, when they're sick, they, they actually eat grass so they can throw up to get rid of the thing that's causing the problem. 
says, and then you go and you go partake in it again? It was bad for you. It was killing you. It was keeping you from me. Why would you go back to that? See, he, he took it away. So it says if we abide in Jesus, we cannot be partaking in that which does not live in him. As Christians, we need to understand something. We need to be sin haters. We must be sin haters. What used to rule us, what Jesus died for. And as Christians, we have to be sin fighters. We have to be sin haters and we have to be sin fighters. We have to fight against it. But here's the problem that I've noticed in churches. We don't want to deal with our sin. It's so much easier for me to deal with your sin. So I'm going to be a sin hater for you and I'm going to be a sin fighter against you. It's, a, it's a, just a very simple deflection technique that everyone uses because we don't want to deal with our junk. Because deep down in some part of our heart, we like that thing that we're doing. Even though God is saying it, it, is, it is killing you. It is stripping you from all that you are meant to be. And so what we need to understand is, yes, it's okay to hate the sin that other people have in their life, that they're celebrating sin. It's okay to want to bring truth in those moments. But could you just focus on yourself? I don't normally say that. This is one of those times. When it comes to your sin, focus on what's going on in your heart and in your life and hate your sin and fight against your sin. That's what we need to be doing as Christians as we move through this world. Transformed hearts will live differently and they will run after God and not after sin. Remember, you are a new creation. The, the, the old has passed away. And you have to start asking, what is my attitude towards sin? When you think of sin, are you very nonchalant? Eh, well, you know, it's whatever, I don't care. It's like cat owners. This is where I get myself in a lot of problems. <laughs> Patsy, I'm not going to make eye contact with you. <laughs> Cats are so cute and cuddly. And then they bite you for no reason. And they do, and they have those little needle teeth. And you're like, oh, they're purring. And then they just like, caca. You're like, why? Why would you do that? but I love you. That's what we do with sin. We think it's great, it makes us feel good, and then it bites us. But we just keep coddling it. Like, what is your added? Like, we don't own cats for that reason. <laughs> now, you may love cats. That's great. All I'm saying is this. What do we do with sin? What is our attitude towards it? Do we see it as something that's dangerous and want to get it out of the house, get it out of our life? Or do we try to like nurture and coddle it in some weird, bizarre way? John Calvin would say this uh, when it comes to what we believe and how we live. Righteousness is not merely buried in our hearts. It also occupies our feet, hands, eyes, and tongues. I read this week. I'm like, oh, oh, it hurts right here. Because that's what I do, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Righteousness in my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm righteous now. I don't want to live it out. That's hard. And that convicts me. And that's why John's he's pressing so hard. He tells him that like, no one deceive you into thinking that sinning is okay. You got to remember, the, the people that were teaching these, this false doctrine, the, the Gnostic teachers, 
in that time would say that, well, only spiritual things matter and all physical things don't matter. So, hey, you can sin. It doesn't matter because that's physical. So just go ahead and sin it up. Do whatever you want and God doesn't care. Can, can I just say something that maybe you already know but you might just need to hear? God is never okay with sin. Amen. Ever. We, we got to get that in our heads. Because if he was okay with it, then that makes him a bad father because he just murdered his son for us. He's never okay with sin. He never wants sin in your life. He hates sin in your life. He had to send his son to take care of that problem in your life. He's going he's gonna to shift to this idea of, so who's your father then? All the way back in the garden, the devil lied to Adam and Eve, and as a result, sin entered the world. Satan was like, I did it. Got God. I win. But God always knew that sin was no match for him, that he was bigger and stronger, more powerful than sin, and his love for his creation. And in verse 8, he gives this great statement that I think we need to hear as Christians as we move through this life. And it says this, <clears throat> Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. Hear this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan didn't win. God wins. Like, he destroyed everything the devil was trying to accomplish in the garden. He completely took care of it. Satan doesn't rule in your life as a believer anymore. Christ does. This big idea that we're born of God, that salvation comes from being born again. That's what he's saying. That there's this new birth that happens with us as Christians. This is the conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus. <clears throat> In John 3, 1 through 6, you get this, this interesting conversation with a Pharisee, a guy who follows the law, does all the right stuff. And he wants to know about salvation and who Jesus is in his teaching. This is what he says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to them, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That there's this spiritual birth that we need to go through. Like... <clears throat> We're all born of flesh, and so therefore we've all inherited sin. We've all had it. We've all got it. It's there. It's, it's in our nature to sin. It's a part of our very DNA. Like, we have no way before Christ to not sin. Like, we just can't. We're, we're stuck. It's a completely part of everything we do because we've been separated from God. But if we're born of God, then we have the seed of righteousness in us. And this idea of seed and birth is talking about that there's a new birth in us and who we are. And because he is righteous, it will develop and grow in us. And so we will start to look like our father. 
We will grow into the righteousness that he has planted in us to make us become who we are with a new heart and a new life and new desires and new thinking and a new way of living. And all of this is based on the idea that it's evidence of our faith. This way of living shows that God has given us his seed and that has grown in us and has become full. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and me? Like, I just want to give you, some, I want to give you uh, five quick diagnostic questions. We're going to bring the band up and then we're going to take communion. You need to ask yourself, are you practicing sin? Is there some kind of ongoing, continuous engagement, making room for, okay with, partaking on a regular basis of sin in your life someplace? For me, when a pastor would say that, I'm like, I don't have to dig hard to find out that one. Either you know it or you don't. And it pops up just like that. Just boom, there it is. I would say this, you need to reject it. You need to repent of it. You need to lay it down at the cross. Leave it there because he says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. When you think about Jesus coming back, do you get worried or do you get excited? It's a good gauge of what's going on in your life. It's a good question to ask yourself. Three, have you really looked at the great love that God has loved you with? Do you see the great links that he went to to save you and free you from sin? And do you see yourself as a child of God? And him as your father. Do you see the access that we talked about earlier in that picture? That is you now. You have that. Do you understand that Jesus came to destroy sin and the works of Satan in your life? That they're not to hang out there, not to to be cute little pets that we keep. He destroyed that. He took care of that. He removed that in your life. You don't have to be a slave anymore. And the fifth one I want you to ask is, what is your attitude towards sin? Like when you think about it, what do you do with it? Do you, do you hate it? Do you despise it? Do you reject it? Or do you kind of tolerate it? Do you kind of put up with it? Do you kind of embrace it? And I'd say if, if that's your view of sin and, 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 and that part of your life, like you need, to, you need to have a talk with God and ask him some questions. Let me pray. <clears throat> Jesus, I thank you for this section uh, today. It's... It's hard, but it's important. And there's, hard, there's a hard message that's connected to a deep truth of who we are, being your children. And I ask that you would just use that to, to press into us today as we get ready to take communion, that we would think through these things. Maybe ask some of these questions. That we would mold this over and just do the, do the work in our hearts right now that you are drawing out of us through your Holy Spirit love you. I ask that you would continue to work. I pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.